Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. I'm Ed Straw. Hi, I'm Claire Cottingham. I'm Lawrence Barretto. Hi, I'm Ben Edwards. Hi, I'm Jamie Chadwick, and you're listening to the Everything F1 podcast. Driven by the fans. For the fans. F1 podcast. Welcome to this week's Everything F1 podcast. Today we discuss our interviews over the last season, including Claire Cottingham's interesting interaction with Fernando Alonso and Ed Straw's dream team, which is not quite what you would think. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Everything F1 podcast. We are going to take our opportunity to look back at some of our interviews that we've had over the past year, uh, show you a highlight, so in hopes that you will go back and listen to the full interview. Today with me, I've got my Everything F1 buddy, Coops. How are you doing, Coops? I'm doing all right. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you very much. Been had a busy weekend and uh, yeah, popping about to... Brighton and stuff with the family, so that was quite nice. You been up to anything? Well, I've certainly not been in Brighton, seeing as I'm <laughs> up in Scotland. That would be quite, I'd be come out, that'd be a bit of a commute. Uh, nothing exciting for me, just work. Uh, and that's generally been it, really. Mm. Okay. Um, well, we are Everything F1. You can find us on our website, www.everythingf1.com. You can also find us on all social medias. We're at JoinEF1 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, we've also got a Discord server. Uh, and, of course, we would love you to listen to our podcasts more often. So if you, if you can, hit the subscribe button on your podcasting service and get us directly in your ears uh, every time we release a new episode. And if you give us a five-star review, we would absolutely love that, of course. Uh, and we will give you a shout-out on the next podcast. So, without further ado, let's talk about the interviews that we've had. Uh, is there Has there been an interview that you've enjoyed uh, the most, uh, Coops, that we've had over the past year? I mean, I don't think there's one that I've enjoyed the most, the ones I've been excited for. Mm-hmm. Probably uh, Mark Peasley. Yeah. McLaren. <laughs> uh, and then also any of the guys from the race.com. So outside of everything F1, it might come as a shock to any of our listeners. I do listen to other F1 podcasts. <laughs> uh, uh, it's like some kind of weird polyamorous kind of relationship there. But, you know, uh, yeah. but. The race.com is one I tend to listen to the most, if it's not as. Uh, so any of the guys in the race.com, Ed Straw and uh, Glenn Freeman, uh, these, they, they were, with, and they're also the virtual stat man. Uh, he, he, I mean, that guy just has stats coming out of the office. It's, you can listen <laughs> to that man all day, and it's just amazing. Yeah, sure, Sean Kelly, and that was a long podcast, that was, as well. That was, yes, <laughs> and he's been on a couple of the podcasts I've listened to, but one in particular, and generally speaking, when he's on, it is a very long podcast here, so it's not, no, it's nothing new, he does talk, uh, he does talk stats, he's just got that many stats, he's got to get out somehow. <laughs> he's a great talker. Uh, one that I really enjoyed, and I, I, I absolutely agree with you 100% on, you know, Mark Priestley 
being one of my favourites because I was I was quite nervous about that one because that was a, a McLaren one, McLaren mechanic. I really looked forward to it and it was a really great interview. Um, but one that I really enjoyed doing, um, and it's one of our most recently recent ones, that was Matt Bishop. Um, like we just had such a good conversation uh, and it was we were there for a good hour and 20 minutes just talking, me and him, and it was superb. It, the conversation didn't dry up. It was It was very good. He was a very... Uh, chatty bloke um and it was just really nice to talk to him really and he had some great anecdotes as well so we'll be touching on all of those um we'll start off with with our mate glenn freeman from the race because uh, he was our very first uh, i'm gonna say kind of celebrity or journalist uh which whichever one you want to take it as um what what specifically did you enjoy about the glenn freeman interview coops i mean it, it was always nice to hear some of the kind of kind of the minutia like as as fans, we don't always get to see and hear and get get, get the stuff from the inside of it. And, you know, Glenn touched a wee bit on Mazepin about the, the difference between Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepin at Haas, and you know how Mick's you know just being like his dad, just taking everything in and talking. Whereas Mazepin was a bit sharp on the radio a few times, and mm-hmm. he kind of spoke a wee bit about that one. It was quite good to hear that he was actually saying that that's. That did happen a lot. He was very sharp. Uh-huh. You know, we'll talk about it in the garage or leave me alone and you're like, you know, you watch yourself. Uh, but I think one of the other ones was when he talked about Michael Schumacher. Uh, you know, yeah. the unfortunate situation is we don't get to, you know, for obvious reasons, we don't have Michael Schumacher there to have the interviews anymore. So any opportunity for Michael to be discussed a bit like Ayrton Senna and kind of some of our great races of the past are the way, you know, listening to the, the interactions, mm. uh, especially when he accused Michael Schumacher of underfueling the Mercedes and testing <laughs> and the, 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 the look of disdain in his eyes. He didn't even need to turn his head. All he did was just <laughs> look over and then he got a bit of a scowling and then the manager gave him a bit of a scowling and, well, let's uh, let's not let's not ruin it. Let's listen to that uh, interview now. Um, we've, we've cut out a, pod, a part of the podcast that's uh, a career highlight for Glenn, um, which just so happened to be meeting uh, Jacques Villeneuve and interviewing him, uh, and then the uh, not a low light, but something that maybe with a bit of controversy um, and his his interaction with Michael Schumacher. So we'll put that in now for you to hear a little preview of the interview with Glenn Freeman. So let's talk about your career highlight then. Just pick, pick if you can pick one. Uh, have you got a career highlight that you want to chat about today? Um, it's it's been a great career so far. I've done all kinds of things. I've met uh, met great drivers, met lots of world champions, covered lots of great races and championships, been to a lot of great circuits. Um, honestly, my my favourite interview mm-hmm. was one I did with Villeneuve where. We did the race of my life feature for Autosport. So he had a free pick. What do you want to talk about? He chose uh, Indy to uh, Indy 95, winning the Indy 500. Uh, he said it was a, a toss-up between that and Jerez, um, but it was Indy for him. Mm. And I spent, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes, just having him describe in great detail winning the Indy 500 from a two-lap penalty. You know, he was two laps down. They call it the Indy 505. Um, and to have him describe it all back to me and to remember what it was like to be a nine-year-old kid supporting him and watching that mm. and then thinking, like, here you are, 
17 years later or whatever it was at the time, having him then taught you all through it, I was like, this is this is cool. Dream come <laughs> this, true. This, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's almost a bit of a cliche answer, but you can't look past something like that. That's, that is, yeah, dream come true stuff. Absolutely incredible and makes you really appreciate the opportunities that come up through a, a career like this. You know, very, very lucky. Oh, so conversely, have you ever said the wrong thing in an interview uh, and, and, and consider it as a as a as a low a low point in your career sorry for being controversial maybe <laughs> <laughs> there's there's quite an obvious one um that was my was my first experience of internet backlash uh it was 2011 uh with michael schumacher right. uh we were at testing at Haref, and every indication we had was that um <clears throat> mercedes this was mercedes first proper car because you remember the 2010 car really was the 2010 undeveloped brawn yeah i always call it the brawn bgp002 um (laughs) so their first Mm -hmm. proper car in 2011 was supposed to be when they made the step and they didn't um i i was i was fresh off of covering the dtm so i had some contacts at mercedes and during the day schumacher went really quick on on soft tires and i got word that the nod had come from germany to set a time to set a quick time um, to get the German press off their backs. And I, I found a way to put that to Schumacher at the end of, at the, end of the day. And the, the scowl he gave me, he wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't properly turn his face to look at me. He kept looking at whoever he was talking before, but he just turned his eyes and his face. I can vividly remember his face. Um, and he gave me quite a, a dressing down. Um, and then his his manager after he left, his manager uh, told me that I don't understand testing and Formula One oh. and, and all this sort of thing. And I sort of I oh, sort dear. of muttered under my breath that I did. Um, <laughs> but then for the first like four races or something of the season, Mercedes were qualifying one point nine seconds off the pace. So um, we were right. But that story uh, doesn't quite end there. I, I was. It was a shame that my main interaction with Michael Schumacher was, you know, a legend of the sport was so negative. But um, I got to put that right in Valencia 2012. I covered that race for Autosport. And all weekend, Michael's sessions clashed with Lewis Hamilton's at McLaren. So all the journalists were going to the Lewis McLaren sessions and nobody was there to talk to Michael except me and one American journalist. Um, So I'd, I'd gone, I got in trouble with his manager again on the Friday because uh, the TV crew's doing their interviews behind the garage. And then as he went to walk off, I asked a question. And he stopped and he answered it and he gave me the time. But his manager then said, this is for TV. You're just supposed to stand there and record it. You can't ask a question. I thought, well, Michael didn't seem to mind. <laughs> but then I went to all his sessions through the rest of the weekend. And he was on really good form. He was really relaxed. He, he saw the funny side of no one being there to talk to him. Uh, the, the other guy asked him a question at one point And he gave an answer. And then the guy said, can you elaborate on that a bit more? And Michael went, of course, ask me another question about it, um, which I really liked. And, and yeah, he just he was really relaxed. And it, and it was obviously the perfect end to the weekend was that he got the only podium of his comeback that weekend. And I was really I was really pleased for him because I'd seen I'd seen a different side to him that weekend. And it was great to see um, him get a result worthy of worthy of mention and to get his only podium. So. Yeah, my, my worst experience was, was with him, but I had a more pleasant experience the following year, which I was kind of relieved about. Okay, moving on to our next interview uh, that we had uh, was with 
the Statman, as you mentioned previously, Coops, uh, the Statman Sean Kelly. Now he was like like we said in the pre previews or the the start of the uh, podcast. He he just chats and chats and chats, doesn't he? Yes. Uh, I mean, um, you could ask him anything, and he'll bring you a stat for it, or he'll know the person, mm-hmm. uh, or he'll know the racetrack, or he'll know the year, or he'll know the model of the car. <laughs> he'll know the nuts that was put on the tire at the third pit stop. I, I'm I'm, get, I'm going too far now, but I mean, it's <laughs> almost at that point, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and he's just he's just such a fabulous talker. Uh, yeah, the stories he can come up with, the conversations he has with you. And, I mean, not to say any of our guests didn't make us relax, but as soon as he came on, he was just, I mean, it wasn't one I was involved in. Uh, I work commitments. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, when I was listening to, I think I listened to some of it live uh, and just muted myself uh, and then listened to the podcast. He's just, he came in and he just, he was as if he was one of, as other guys, he was just one of the Everything F1 crew just having a chat. And mm. There was no ego about him, you know. Yes, he knows he was good at his stats, but then, as he said in the pod, I mean, it's sometimes it's 18, 20 other days studying stats for Formula One. That was just what part of his job, you know. Mm. So if he wasn't this good at the stats, there's a problem. Well, he was very good at the stats, and, and there were so many stats thrown us thrown at us uh, during the podcast. Uh, a great listen throughout the whole thing. Again, it's a long one um, because we were there for such a long time talking to Sean. Um, but a highlight of mine, <laughs> and I wanted to put it in there because he promised us uh, paddock pass, not paddock passes, paddock to, uh, paddock tour. Yes, um, he runs it, doesn't he? He's the he, he's the he, hostess, uh, the hostess yeah. with the mostess. <laughs> so he does the F one experiences, and he promised uh, the group of us that was on the podcast at that po- at that time. Any time we we're in a, a paddock, that we could go and speak to him. But he also tells us about what he does uh, with the F one experiences. Um, so we thought it was quite an interesting part uh, part of the uh, podcast to listen to. So we'll let you we'll leave you with that um, little snippet of the interview with Sean Kelly. I'm thinking more about your your career and your, you know, your job that you do. Obviously, you're the stat man as well. You're the stat man and you give statistics to all the uh, operate, the, the broadcasters, sorry. Um, but you also do the tours for the F1 experience. Obviously, you, you mentioned that uh, earlier on. Um, but what, what does that involve? Who, who, do you, who do you give this to? Is this to big celebrities? Have you, have you met any celebrities doing this? Or, you know, give us, give us a kind of a, a rundown of what you do with that. Well, I haven't met any big celebrities doing that job specifically. I mean, I've met a few celebrities doing F1 generally, but yeah. not, not in that role. Not yet, anyway. I, I think the pandemic's obviously put the kibosh on it a little bit uh-huh. um, because I'd only recently got into that. Um, I spent 15 years at NBC and at Speed Channel in the US, right. which is why I'm based in the US. Um, and then after that, after NBC went away at the end of 2017, I moved into, I used that spare bandwidth to move to Paddock Club and uh, F1 Experiences. So I do that when the cars are not on the track now. Right. So I'm working with the t- I'm working with the broadcasters when cars are on track, and then the rest of the time I'm off dealing with guests. So it's paddock tours, um, and I do the paddock tours. I like to do the paddock tours like it's a grid walk. Right. Okay. Like it's your own person. It's like your own personal grid walk. So I wander around the paddock, and I know quite a few people in the paddock. Yeah. Um, having hung around for a while, um, so if I see Coulthard coming our way, you know, I'll be like. Hey, DC, over here. Come up, come up here. We're with friends. We're with friends. Come say hi. Yeah. Um, 
And that makes it really cool for them because it's rather than saying, hey, this is where, you know, this is the Ferrari motorhome. Yeah. Like, Hang on in there a minute. I can see someone in there who I want to drag out. Wait there a second. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's Johnny Herbert. Hey. Okay. <laughs> you know, or whoever. Um, so it makes it a little bit more dynamic for the guests the way we try and do that. Like, because they, they always, when, when people ever come into the F1 paddock, um, has, has anyone here been in the F1 paddock, by the way? Um, only at Silverstone, uh, 2004. Yeah. So old, old school. And yeah. Perhaps you can relate to this. When you go in the paddock for the first time, you feel like, don't look anyone in the eye. Don't touch, any, yeah. don't touch anything yeah. in case it explodes. <laughs> and be cognizant of the fact that Bernie will vaporize you at any point. Um, <laughs> and, that's the, and the same is true for the people who worked in it. You know, as you, you settle in after, after a while, but initially it's like that. Okay. So with the guests, you always try and be like, hey, don't worry. I've got the in. Right? I'm going to get an experience that people don't normally get. Just stick with me, all right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty fun. Um, and then I do I do love. Sorry, I was going to say I do like I do love watching um, Ted's notebook because you kind of get that experience on the TV, yeah. um, and you you see people like yourself, um, the guys that work for Formula One, the guys that work for the TV channels, and and it's all kind of behind the scenes. And I kind of really like that because it makes you feel like you're part of F one. Right. And, I, and I've been the fan on the outside looking in. And I, and I thought with that, with the paddock tours especially, I always thought, well, what would make me think I've got to do that again? Like mm. next time, I can't, I can't go back to sitting in the stands. This is how I have to do Formula One from now on. I have to have this whole experience because I feel like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on the inside yeah. of this private yeah. club that you don't normally get to see. And like we're being a bit matey and a bit pally, and it's not like who are you? <laughs> yeah, it's that. That I love that because because of course all the guests go out beaming like that was so cool. I can't believe I just met David Coulthard yeah. or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's pretty cool. And then it, you know I do a thing called Friday Night Insider where I stand in the pit lane and uh, accost our guests with a, a million and one facts and figures to wow their brains. And I, I, I'm always standing in front of a garage, and sometimes the, the mechanics start to play tricks on me right okay they'll, they'll, they'll deliberately fire the engine just as i'm talk, starting to talk <laughs> that's happened that's happened more than once um sometimes they come out and listen like just to make me feel like self-conscious that they're right over my shoulder <laughs> um, yeah all that stuff happens but uh, basically it came about because they i said to them look everyone in the broadcast side comes to me for this sort of information mm -hmm. shouldn't you have someone yeah. like that with your guests and it particularly it pertained to F1 experiences because F1 experiences guests are real petrol heads right. and they want, they want to know like what's the graining process on the Pirelli tire. Yeah. You know? Whereas paddock club is a little bit more of a country club at the racetrack. They're more there. Cause it's like, Oh, well, I've never been to a Grand Prix before, but it's amazing. You know, like they appreciate it, but not to the depth of the F1 experiences fan would. Right. So that's how it came about. It was like, look, if you've got a load of people here who are massive fans, you need to have someone to show them around who knows even more than that. You know, you can't just have a, a, a general chaperone. You, you need to have somebody who's completely on it and can answer, you know, how many races of Porsche won or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so that's how it came about. That's how I got into that. Oh, brilliant. It sounds like it's, uh, you, you've got a great lifestyle. I'm sure you've made, well, you've certainly made three of us uh, envious. Uh, <laughs> Uh, 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 I'll tell, <laughs> tell you what, lads, if we, if we, when, if and when we get back to normalcy and, and we're all at the racetrack, you, you give me a, you give me a ring. All right. And we'll sort out a paddock tour for you. All right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. We will hold Thank you for you. that. We That's will hold awesome. you for that. Right. Well, well, 
as much as as much as my authority allows <laughs> i will try i will try and make it, try. i'll try and make sure it happens yeah <laughs> normally normally i can make those things happen as a special favor wonderful let's see if we can do it again lovely yeah i, I look forward to it so we will definitely hold sean kelly to that um next time i'm at silverstone and he's there i'm definitely going to go off and find him um next came along uh to we came along to mark Priestley, who obviously is the uh the ex-mechanic for mclaren um it, i was really excited about this one and um, i got to have a one-to-one -one, um interview for, for a good over just over half an hour with him um what were your thoughts on this uh interview then uh coops yeah i mean he was at amongst mclaren in some of the more pivotal moments in modern Formula One. Yeah. I mean, he was in the paddock when it was the Brazil Grand Prix. It was the, is that Glock moment? Mm -hmm. uh, he was there during Alonso and Hamilton in 2007 and could have talked a wee bit about how that could have worked out. For me, they're, they're quite big. I mean, they're big partly because they involve Hamilton, who's still around and he's mm. kind of major player in this generation of Formula 1 and then I remember watching these things as a fan and reacting as a fan like what, what have I just watched and you know as sporting fans or Formula 1 fans you know when the moment happens that's going to be a moment that you remember mm -hmm. so to hear him talk about it from that from his perspective is amazing uh, again, another guy, I mean, I see this for a lot. I'll probably say this more and more and more as we go through the rest of the interview. <laughs> I could listen to him all the time. Yeah. The, the it is Glock moment is a bit like the Man City moment when it's Agrero and they, they win the championship in the 94th, 95th minute. It's, I'm not a Man City fan. I mm. watched that and was jumping about like, what have I just watched? Uh, and again, it's, it's amazing. Uh, to hear his kind of take on it and the fact that Mr. Nicole is the loudest thing in the garage at that moment. Don't ruin uh, it for him. I'm going to I'm going to introduce that now then uh, cause, okay. because we, the segment that we've got is a good eight minute segment from Mark Priestley's interview. Oh, um, we're going to talk about is uh, a little bit of time with Raikkonen uh, about Hamilton's championship win uh, and then the previous troublesome year when the young rookie Lewis Hamilton uh, was alongside two-time world champion Fernando Alonso. So we'll cut to that part in the interview now. And as you say, you you, you experienced a, a few championship winners there then. Uh, well, a, a couple of uh, championship winners with Hakkinen and uh, and Lewis Hamilton, I'm, uh, I'm guessing. So w w out, out of the two drivers, which which do you prefer working for? Or or even the whole of, um, the, whole of the McLaren drivers that you did work for? Yeah, it's that's interesting actually because um, I mean the, the the sort of typical question that a lot of people say is who's the best, and that's something that's really hard to answer. I won't ask you because, that one. I won't ask you that one. No, but it's, it's the reason it's so hard is that um, you know things change over time. Obviously, the 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 demands from an F one driver to be the best F one driver, the demands are different in different mm -hmm. eras. Um, you know, even if you just take those two, we take Mika Hakkinen and Lewis Hamilton. The sport had moved on an awful lot by the time Lewis Hamilton came into it, and um, and there were two very different drivers, both at the top of their game. Yeah. I'd say the one I actually enjoyed working with most uh, was Kimi. Oh, okay, um, and that's partly because I I worked very closely with Kimi. I was on his car for the whole time he was at the team. We had some amazing success. We didn't quite win the championship, but we came incredibly close, mm. and we had a really tight bond between 
him and and our little crew of people working around the car and that was something very special that i don't think we ever had to the quite the same level with anybody else um but of course winning the championship with lewis was in the way that it was won i'm sure most people remember that race in brazil in 2008 it was um just an, an iconic sporting moment, let alone an iconic Formula One moment. And to be part of that was amazing. Yeah, well, I, I remember shouting probably at the the top end of my voice uh, during that. And I can't imagine uh, how how loud it was in, in that pit uh, garage at the time. It must have been just... Well, I'll tell you what the loudest thing was in that garage was Nicole Scherzinger, who was screaming her head off at the back of that garage <laughs> in the most high-pitched tone that I could still feel piercing my ears beneath my uh, my headset. So that's my overriding memory from that last lap was her screaming. It took a few days for your ears to recover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it was, uh, you know, they talk about um, emotional roller coasters in sports, probably way too much. But I don't think anything describes that that last lap better. In that, you know, in one moment we uh, we we thought we had it, and then we thought it had gone uh-huh. away, and then of course the way it came back in the last corner of the last lap of the last race of the season, you know, it was just um, you couldn't you couldn't make it up. So very, uh, you know, it was, it was an amazing moment for us. Equally, I felt inc- I felt the heartbreak that those guys at Ferrari must have felt because they were in the opposite. They were in the same roller coaster, but on the opposite, you know, side of it, and. Um, I definitely had a, a moment in amongst our, you know, overriding joy, yeah. sparing a thought for them because it, it's just crushing when that sort of thing happens. Yeah, and obviously you, you saw, we saw on the on the videos and uh, and, the, and the, the live feed that they were all set. They were celebrating for for you know a yeah. few moments until they, that unfortunate uh, engineer went over and said and broke the news to the the family and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was a great iconic sport moment uh, something that will probably will go you know down in, in one of britain's favorite aspect uh, britain's favorite wins uh, for for a championship oh, I, I think, think. so and it, i think when i look back over my my 10 years at the team if you mm-hmm. like you know we had some amazing moments some amazing race wins and uh, i think that one not just because it won the championship i think even if it wasn't a championship race i think just the way it played out with you know going into the race we only needed to finish fifth despite whatever Felipe Massa did. And we had a car more than capable of doing that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the one thing we didn't need was changeable conditions. And of course it absolutely <laughs> hammered down at various points in the race. So there was everything there to trip us yeah. up and it very nearly did, but um, to come, so, you know, to just get across the line in such a, a dramatic fashion was, was a, a privilege to be part of. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. How about the year before? Cause the year before there's obviously a lot of tensions between uh, Alonso and, and the new boy, Lewis Hamilton. Um, w- w- did you yeah. feel that within the team or was that just something that you kind of turned, turned your mind off to, you just got down and did your, did your job right, basically? It was, it was impossible to turn your mind off to it. I think, um, you know, by that point I was, I was actually sort of moving to a more senior position in the team. So I wasn't associated directly with either one of their two cars. I was in the middle of the garage that mm-hmm. year. So, you know, part of my responsibility is, was keeping the, the kind of keeping the calm and keeping the team working in the right way. And it was, it was an incredibly difficult, difficult situation because, I mean, essentially what happened was the two drivers fell out with each other. Yeah. And in a Formula One team, your drivers are kind of the sort of, they're leaders in their own right. You know, they're driving the car, but they're also the people that a lot of people within the team look up to for leadership and for guidance and um, inspiration at times and uh, when they fell out with each other in such a public fashion yeah what happened over time was that the two sides of the garage kind of gravitated around their own drivers and it formed this big split down the middle and um, 
I mean, undoubtedly, it's the reason we didn't win the title that year because the team wasn't functioning in in the optimum way it should. We weren't working together as a team. We were fighting against each other. Um, and together with the whole Spygate, you know, drama that was going on yeah. that year and the um, the fine that came off the back of that, there's a lot of media, negative media coverage that year around us, despite the fact it was nothing to do with any of us in the garage, mm-hmm. of course. Um, it was very difficult to to remain focused. And when I look back on it now, it's we had a car more than capable of winning a championship that year. We had two drivers definitely capable of doing it. And yet we came away pretty much empty handed. And I can probably point almost all of that down to those distractions mm. and obviously how we allowed ourselves to be distracted from it. Yeah. Uh, were you were you one of the pit crew during that, um, you know, that 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 pit yeah. pit stop? Were you looking at the Alonso going, get out of here, we need to get him out? Yeah, in Hungary, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, but it, probably the most bizarre pit stop I ever did. Um, yeah, it was one of those weird ones where the, the whole stacking the drivers in the pit lane wasn't unusual. That was all part of the process then. It was that strange qualifying format we had where you had to burn fuel off in the early phase of qualifying. So doing a lot of laps, burning fuel off, and then coming in for the, the late tyre change to go for your flying lap. Mm-hmm. It seems really weird to say it now, but believe it or not, that was the qualifying format we had. <laughs> um, so going through that process was all normal. And actually, it was al- almost normal as well to hold your first driver in that scenario, sometimes to wait for the right gap on the racetrack. And we had planned to do that. So it was Fernando that came in first. Yeah. We had planned to hold him for something like six seconds i forget the actual number but that was all part of the plan and when that six seconds was up and he was getting a countdown in his ear of course he didn't move uh lewis by this point was queuing behind him and we had no idea Uh, we had as much idea as everybody watching at home what was going on in the moment uh, until we sort of start to realize after five or six more seconds that fernando was checking in his rearview mirrors he could see lewis behind him and he was almost calculating with unbelievable accuracy how much he needed to hold Lewis up by for Fernando to get round and take the, the start his flying lap but for Lewis to not make it round and, and get caught out by the chequered flag so on one hand I was just you know it was disgraceful I was disgusted with the way the behavior of the yeah. both on that particular day because Lewis played his part as mm-hmm. well but on the other hand, I couldn't help but be slightly impressed by how accurately he managed to calculate that. Yeah, it was, well, as devastating as a, as a British supporter at the time. But uh, looking back at it, that's, uh, again, one of the, one of the uh, iconic moments from uh, Lewis Hamilton's first year. Yeah. Oh, that was such a good conversation. I really enjoyed that conversation with him. It was good. Yeah. Uh, and you know when people are good and comfortable because you can get a lot out of them in such a short time. Yeah. You, you, when you look at it and think, I've got half nervous, and you think, oh. and then when you listen to what I actually talked about, you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, there was a that lot. Works. Yeah, a lot, a lot of conversation. Uh, and at the time, I was ashamed to say that I hadn't read his book um, uh, that, that he'd obviously has released. Um, but since the interview with him, I actually have sat down and read the read the book cover to cover, and it's given me even more insight. So if you if you, it was an audio book. Like... Okay, I listened to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, honestly, he he had so much experience that I really want to chat to him about even more. Um, so if you uh, if you enjoyed the interview with him on our show, uh, which hopefully you go back and listen to it, you will absolutely love his book. Um, which you know uh, um, he does give it a, a little a little plug uh, on the podcast too. Now our next person we've actually had on a couple of times. Uh, he's another one of the guys from the race, uh, and it's Ed Straw. Honestly, I've got a lot of time for this bloke. He's absolutely superb. 
um obviously we listen to his race um podcasts ourselves um and he's been on our podcast now a couple of times and every both times he's just been very very chatty uh, and just great fun to have on the podcast He's so down to earth as well, isn't he? He's, he's amazing. He, again, his insights as a as a kind of professional journalist and mm. connections he has. But I mean, I think outside of the knowledge, just the fact how how much he's championed us as a such a small kind of relatively insignificant part of the Formula One world to to a degree. Mm. I mean, he's emailing you after his first interview going, right, I've got this guy, I've got this, shoot this guy a message, I'll do this. And then even after the second one, we were chatting and he's like, no, I'll get, I'll get a hold of him. Well, have you not heard from him back yet? Right, I'll, I'll do it. I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> I mean, for, I, I mean, for us to, like, along with Sponge, we were the kind of three that kind of kicked this all this ball rolling yeah. a, couple, a few years mm. back. And to hear that from a professional journalist, you know, Gets you a wee bit emotional, you know. It hits you, it hits you right there, right, 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 right there, you know. <laughs> it was, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, the guy's a legend, mate. Yeah, we got a lot of time for Ed Straw, uh, and we actually had uh, an in- an interview question from Sasha that I thought you might find interesting. Um, it's a basic, basically what his fantasy team would be, uh, as he had raced himself previously. So, who would be his uh, best race partner, or you know, alongside him in a team? Um, what's what race would it be uh, involved in, uh, and then uh, of course what team um, he would like to to race for as well. So it's a, it's quite an interesting answer actually, and it's not not what you're expecting, um, which is it's not a, which is, it's not a Formula One car. Yeah, either. exactly. So it, it's it's not what you're expecting, uh, and it's 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 quite an interesting response to so you know quite a fun question really. So we'll leave you with that with Ed Straw. Yeah, so you mentioned um, that you enjoyed racing yourself in the past. So my question would be, who would be your dream team? Who would be your dream teammate? And what would be your favourite race to win? Oh, that's a good question. Well, the last one's the easiest one. The the one that I've all, I, I would always, as a driver, love to win is Le Mans. Uh, Obviously not got very close to that. The closest I've got, did almost win the 2CV 24 hours one year. We finished third in the end, but uh, oh, wow. prob- probably okay. should have won. Um, <laughs> but I like the the kind of teamwork aspects and the multiple drivers and that kind of thing. And uh, so that that was always, yeah, if you sort of say, you, yeah, you can have your fancy winning any race, it would be, it would be uh, uh, Le Mans. Uh, I mean, in terms of, I guess if you're talking about teammates, the thing that always fascinates me is seeing what makes the absolute great drivers great and what makes the drivers who are sort of the second tier who are great on their day but not every day what's the difference i I find that interesting so any kind of great driver to be up against so if uh if you could shoehorn me into a formula one car alongside lewis hamilton i would see in even more detail just how he was far and away on a completely different planet to to what i was doing because you it's it's always interesting to see the best isn't it so and maybe if you were going to use a time machine perhaps uh perhaps someone like jackie stewart would be fascinating to see up close mm. i think he's a, a driver of immense quality yeah um, and if you're having a debate about the greatest he's 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 in there with hamilton senna and you know a handful of others clark I'll try and name them all there to, to avoid uh, <laughs> uh, condemning people by omission so that that would be Interesting, and yeah, best team. Um, well, I'm going to go a little bit personal on this one because um, there's a team in the British Touring Car Championship, Speedworks Motorsport, uh, who I did drive for. I was there when they started it, 
mm-hmm. um, I got pole position for their first ever race, not in the BTCC, just in humble Mazda MX-5 racing, but they're, they're uh, great people. They've achieved amazing things, um, mainly after I ceased to be involved, funnily enough. But, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll always watch BTCC, partly because it's very, very good, but also partly to see how they're getting on, because obviously they're a works Toyota team so there's a there's a personal reason for for that one so I've got a slightly strange thing where I'm winning Le Mans in a in a touring car run by Speedworks Motorsport alongside Lewis Hamilton Jackie Stewart so uh, <laughs> I've, I've definitely come up with an interesting fantasy world there so we're back after that question with Ed Straw ah told you it was not what you'd be expecting um but he has you know a, a great interview uh, on our podcast and as i say we've, we've got two from him now so hopefully he'll come again uh, at some point in the future uh, but so thank you very much for uh, being a great guest ed uh, we're going to move on to one of his colleagues as well who also uh, works for the race claire cottingham she works for the race she works for she's worked for the bbc she's worked for a few different places hasn't she she's she's uh, been all over the shop in formula one um, and now she's currently writing articles for a newspaper um, this year uh, the Formula One based articles, uh, so she's busy doing that. What What do you think about Claire? She was, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm gonna say she was another really down to earth, very easy to talk to person. Yeah, she just uh, she just came on, chatted away, was making a few jokes and having a laugh, <laughs> and just generally just taking a good chill. I mean, yeah, I mean the biggest one was probably a a, a first attempt at an interview for BBC Five Live. Fernando Alonso. That, that was funny. Uh, Don't ruin it. And, you know, that's the clip. The yeah, the <laughs> listeners will have a good listen and probably have a good wee giggle. But just as a pair, from a personal standpoint, uh, she did mention that she she followed uh, a sport called cricket. <laughs> now, as a Scotsman, no idea. <laughs> I I have since googled it and. I was bored just looking at the views. Uh, huh. I, I still don't know. I, I don't know what it is. It looks like growing up round us. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, and don't get me started in baseball because that's worse. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, she flummoxed the Scotsman with that one word uh, and then tried to make a dig about rugby. And then I politely reminded her who beat who <laughs> and at Twickenham during the Six Nations, which then she moved on to something there. Yeah. So, well, good off the here. clips that we've got, I've got two little parts of the clips. Uh, the first it was just a message to all any young women looking to get into motorsport. I think it's a good positive message uh, to put on the podcast. So that's going to be there at the start. And then uh, we'll cut into uh, the funny moment that Coops was talking about. She actually starts off uh, by saying, oh, there's this funny moment. And then she stops herself twice. There's a, there's one moment where she says, oh, no, I can't say that. And then there's a, another moment where she, she starts saying... Libel, libel. Where she, where she says, with Raikkonen, oh, no, I can't say that. So, Claire, <laughs> next time, we really need to find out what those two things were. But the, the funny moment that she did leave us with was was brilliant. And, and here it is, uh, after, of course, the inspirational message for women. What would be your key piece of advice for a young uh, lady watching motorsport thinking you know what this is what I want to do what, what would you say to them back yourself <laughs> because, <laughs> because the men back themselves like men are wonderful mm. don't get me wrong like they are awesome but they are they back themselves and women tend to or maybe more me I, I you know I, I tend to second guess myself and mm. and I think that is where my downfall has been in the past 
whereas someone else might back themselves a lot more. Um, you are your biggest champion. And if you don't champion yourself, people will see through it in a heartbeat. Um, and get nice people around you. That's what you like. If you've got nice people around you, it doesn't matter what people are saying on Twitter or what people are saying on any social media, because you've got the people around you that are looking after you and checking in on you. They're the only people that matter. Don't care about the rest of them. Like there's <laughs> tossers everywhere, but like, but keep your core, you know, keep the people that mean the most to you close to you. Uh, and, Burnt yourself. <laughs> um, have you ever said the wrong thing in an interview? I mean, probably this whole interview. <laughs> no, no, not this one. No. I mean, what have I said so far? Um, yeah, tell you a funny one that I actually I don't know if I can tell you that one. <laughs> oh, that means that means you must tell us. No, no, no I, can't, I can't tell that one. I have done a few. One of them was involving Kimi Räikkönen. Oh, okay, which was. He he'd misheard that I'd said something um, in an interview. Mm. I oh, no, I can't tell you that one. I can't tell you. That one. Um, <laughs> what, what's another one I said? Um, uh, oh, a very famous one. Famous. Listen to me. It's on my Wikipedia page. It's not. When I first did my F one, my first F one race, I was. Um, I was cut, I was in um, it wasn't my first race, but my first race for BBC Five Live, and I was mm. in for Jenny Gow, who was doing Formula E, um, London FE alongside Jack Nichols, and they were out in London, so I was um, drafted in alongside Tom Clarkson and Alan McNish at the time. So a couple of years ago, yeah, 2015, 16, 16, 15. Mm-hmm. 16. Anyway, it was Austria. <laughs> and uh, it was my first time in the paddock, uh, like properly pit lane reporting, like up and down, like before I'd sort of been in and out of the paddock, but it was when I was Radio Silverstone. So it was like, I'd literally walked up and down the paddock and seen a few drivers once. Anyway, this is my first time properly in a pit lane uh, in F1. And uh, I was with Alan McNish as we were walking up and down and Alan, lovely, lovely person. Absolutely love Alan, got a lot of time for him. But um, we were walking up and down and um, my first interview that I did, I saw Fernando Alonso. And I was like, oh, this is going to be my first interview. This is going to be, this is going to be, this is the big balls. You know what I mean? Like, this, this is good stuff. Anyway, so I went over and uh, and Alan said, you know, was, oh, Fernando, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, how's it going? And I had this lovely conversation with him. And I was like that. Just like waiting to jump in, like looking like an absolute idiot in the corner. And I was like, well, it's my turn. They're, they're, they're finishing now. And I went, <laughs> Hello, Alonso. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And like, I just thought, Alan, just be like, next to me, just looking at me, and he's never let me, like, literally, I saw him in Monaco the other day, and he went, hello, Alonso. And I was like, whatever, whatever. So that's never let me down. So that was a good one. Ugh. First interview on BBC Radio 5 Live, and I call him Alonso. <laughs> Honestly, you must have re- you must have really enjoyed watching you squirm at that moment. You just just, just laugh, just like, I'm just I'm not even going to save you. I'm just going to leave you to. I just stood there and went, no, let's crack on. Keep <laughs> going. <laughs> <laughs> I just carried on. I didn't say anything. I was just like, no, your name's a lot. You know, that's it now. Hello, Alonso. Hello, Alonso. Such a funny, yeah. such a funny thing. I'm going to have to wind her up about that if she ever comes on again. <laughs> Partly Alan McNish still does. Yeah. <laughs> so we will uh, we'll, we'll have to keep on the tradition uh, of keeping that alive. Our next guest that helped us preview the Baku Grand Prix was none other than the Suns' Ben Hunt. 
he's their main um, F1 journalist there at the Sun. Um, and, you know, I think he gets a bit of a bad rep because of the, some of the things that he's had uh, done in the past, some of the articles and, and whatnot, um, or some of the comments that, that have been on, say, Drive to Survive or whatnot. But, you know, again, he was a, a nice bloke to chat to, actually. Yeah, I mean, he was a very, again, another one, very down to air. Yeah, again, easy to chat to. Has a lot of, you know, a lot of good insight, uh, uh, and just generally, just, just a nice guy, Gen- a genuinely nice guy. Uh, I didn't realise until you mentioned it at the time, but the the interaction with Total Wolf that's immortalised on Drive to Survive. Mm. I didn't realise that was him. <laughs> I, I, it wasn't until you said, and then I thought I was at the pod going. Oh, I was happy. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, and then, of course, I followed him a lot through Twitter. Uh, and he came up with a thing called the Staying In. Yeah. So every Friday, he would, call, he would put it out on Twitter, the Twitter sphere, and he ended up having group chats and he had pub quizzes and it was people from all around the world. And, uh, and it ended up, sometimes we would still be chatting a few of them until way into the morning. Mm. Uh, we could have people from all around. Let's hear in his own words then um, the Toto Wolf story, um, and, and of course uh, we, we cut into a, another section of the uh, podcast where he talks about the staying in too. So here it is. Uh, well, you did touch on there, uh, putting your kind of foot in your yeah. mouth uh, a little bit. Let, let's talk about probably uh, one of your most famous uh, yeah. foot in mouth uh, opportunities or, or, or circumstances. Uh, I don't think it was that bad actually. Um, but do, do you want to? Do you want to? Uh, outline what happened and who it was with yeah it was with um mercedes boss toto wolf and uh-huh. mercedes had just had their worst result um was it I germany was... 2019 was it yeah uh 19 was it 19 was it it was, it was 19 yeah yeah and they all dressed up in commemorative um outfits and uh it was quite funny because um netflix weren't allowed into their camp the previous year um and then they saw how good it had done. And then they mm-hmm. sort of welcomed them in with open arms, gave them full access, and then they had the absolute shocker. And I just said to Toto, like, um, you know, how embarrassing was it, you know, <laughs> live in front of those cameras? <laughs> he thought about it for a second, and he said, um, you want you want me to give you a, a headline for The Sun? And I was like... No, no, don't worry about it. We do the headlines just to start. It was like that. It was just like a, I wasn't being sarky or anything. I was just like, no, don't worry about that. We do the headlines. And then you want to give me an answer, you know, after you give me that coin. I was like, well, it's up to you. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't being mischievous. Um, you know, people don't understand the relationship. You know, we, we talk to to every single race. Um, mm. And then funny enough, I, I, I totally forgot that that was coming out until we were a Mercedes Ineos launch at the start of 2020 mm. and he said to me have you seen the netflix thing i said no we don't get the advanced screening we just have to wait like everyone else to keep. he goes oh it's very funny you'll you'll, you'll see it and i was like <laughs> all right so he kind of gave me a heads up about it but um and then i joked with the team about getting a, um, a t-shirt for australia um <laughs> i love toto or something like that it's just as a, as a sort of funny but then um, the coronavirus stopped all the fun and everything. But um, yeah. well, we obviously have spoken a lot about it in the past. I've spoken to Susie. She she thinks it's hilarious. He's, he's mm. right. And um, yeah, we've moved yeah, he, on. 
uh, even the Mercedes uh, team themselves came out on Twitter and said, look, it, it's, it's up to yeah. um, journalists like Ben Hunt to keep us honest and, yeah. and, and, and ask those questions that need to be asked. So that, I think they're all, they were happy with it in the end, really. It was just... Uh, I, think, bad, I, think, I think maybe so. Was... I mean, I, 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 I have to be a, a bit of a needle in their backside because if I wasn't that, then I wouldn't be doing my job. And I think, you know, there are quite a lot of journalists in F1 who who focus on the, the technical side of things. That's great. That's what they deal with. But um, I'm trying to bring it to a sort of a different audience. Um, mm. You know, maybe people aren't so keen, but still to build profiles and report. And so that's what I, that's what I do. And so my questions aren't, you know, even the other day, what was it I asked? Um, I asked Sebastian Vettel about his, um, you know, he did this sabbatical and he was doing um, environmental farming and stuff. Have you seen this? I don't know if you've seen this, but he, he, during the COVID that. period, he, he he was studying organic farming, right? Okay, it's a little bit weird, but again, it's like a little bit of colour. And um, I asked him that and I was a bit cheeky and said, you know, about tractor race with Lewis. Um, <laughs> you know, we've got Lewis involved in the organic farming. But he was like, do you want to ask a serious question? But but for me, that was kind of a serious question because it's a it's something different. You know, if you guys haven't heard about it, it's it's just something new. And like I was saying to, about building personalities, and mm. I found it interesting. And he didn't want to talk about it, partly because it's private life. Maybe he thought I was taking the mickey. I wasn't. I was actually curious as just to what it was. Um, but yeah, he snapped back at that. And I was just a bit like, mm, I'm just trying to help you out a little bit and build you a little bit of a profile piece but uh he didn't want to know so what i want to talk about with you was you did a thing during the pandemic which is called the staying in every yeah. friday uh, and i did it on a couple of occasions a friday night i was like i'm bored should i go on and i never i could never put myself out yeah. to do it but it seemed to get a lot of traction what was the reasons for it or- yeah I, I i'm glad you mentioned that because i'm like i'm super proud i did it um and the the theory was that I wanted to create a, a virtual pub environment, which was a round table, just to have discussions. And it wasn't necessarily an F1 thing, but it did become an F1 thing. And people joining, there was music in the background, we created a playlist, uh, there was different themes, um, ranging from, you know, Britpop to particular years, if it was someone's birthday, then we would do music from that particular year. That was playing in the background, but it was just a free discussion. And it was a way of people staying uh, in touch with each other, building friendships, um, mm. talking about F1, but it was a sense of a community spirit. And you know what, Like I had like so much um, positive reaction from the people who were joining. We, ha- we had over 100 people, over different people over the year, from different countries from you know australia all the way to brazil we've created a whatsapp group we're still in touch and it was just about helping each other through it mm. i think you know in the uk we always think that we're having it worse than anyone else in terms of the pandemic and you just you know bang your head whether you agree with the government's policy or not and you're just really frustrated but then you can log on and then you can talk to someone in brazil who's going through the same thing and then you realize you know, we're all in this together. We've all got mm. to work together. And it was quite nice. It really did rep- replicate just a round table. And we had some random conversations. There were some <laughs> good guests and good people joined in. Um, sometimes everyone had a drink. It was just a good laugh. They would go on and, you know, until like, I'd try and kick them off about eight, nine o'clock in the evening. And then, you know, I would log off around two, three, 
Wow. And then I would wake up in the morning and I'd get a message saying, well, that was a late one. And it was, I think the record was quarter to eight in the morning where Whoa. people were just chatting. But it but it was great because that you know it's a group of friends and you know we're now talking about meeting up you know in the real world some of us already have meeting up at racetracks um I go to the US you know like you know go see a couple of guys out there and they like really excited to go to Austin and you know it's it's great it was really good fun but I think it helped a lot with mental health i think we all struggled um you know myself included people say you know thanks without it i don't know what i would have done and that's like wow when you get that message you think quite you know it's only an idea just to keep people talking um and you should have joined because you would have enjoyed it you definitely should have gone along to speak to him for uh, at the staying in i think you would have enjoyed it coops i know i did begrudgingly or not begrudgingly i do kind of regret because there was a few times that i thought you know, it's Friday, I was home, mm-hmm. could have just filed it up, but I didn't. Yeah, for, for someone who talks quite a lot and is generally quite a confident, outgoing person, for some reason I got very conscious of myself. No. Uh, well, I did see on, the, on his Twitter feed the other day that they actually went out, out. They, they, yes, they were staying they, out, so. Yeah, there was a, there was a meeting in London, uh, and one of the other journalist, kind of motorsport journalist, Hazel Southwell, mm-hmm. was there, because uh, I, I found it through her Twitter feed, because I followed her, and then I realised that he actually went out. So there was a wee group that went down to London. Uh, again, if I decided to do that, one hell of a commute for a, for a night at a pub, <laughs> uh, I would take about a week and a half, yeah. and then I wouldn't be much of a pub night out. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was it was definitely uh, he was he was a good guy. Oh, another another good one. We should we need to probably invite on. We need to get a panel of all these guys on near the end. Definitely. Our, our next guest was Lawrence Barreto. Now he's the F one kind of supremo journalist uh, for the F one dot com uh, website. Uh, he's also done stuff previously for the BBC uh, and various other things. And again, a nice bloke to talk to. Uh, was introduced to us uh, via Ed Straw. So thanks again, Ed, for for <laughs> helping us with uh, more guests. Um, w- what did you like about the conversation with Lawrence uh, Coops? I'm going to sound like a broken record, but <laughs> it's, it's again, it's the insight. I mean, it's just it's he just has this knowledge from a different perspective. Uh, you know, I think I posed the question about you know how what will COVID do long term. In the last year and a half to two years, probably into next season, Formula One and the way it's worked and the way things are done in the paddock have changed. And it was it was interesting to hear from someone who's there, and I think he's been one of the ones who's been lucky enough to be there pretty much all the way through. Mm. Uh, so it was nice to listen to hear him, you know, you know his side of it and. I think he's. I think he said, if I remember right, that it's you won't have the kind of media scrums anymore, and that's not because they don't. It, it's not allowed, mm. but just that people just won't allow it personally. Uh, although there is one regret: is the fact that you forgot to ask him about his trainers. Yeah, I forgot to ask him about his shoes. Shoes. Uh, Ed said we've got to got to speak about his shoes. That's his trademark thing. So Lawrence, if you're listening, 
you've got to come on and tell us all about your shoe collection because I did promise you at the start of the podcast, well, before we started the podcast, when we had the chat beforehand, that I was going to bring it up. Um, but because the podcast was about five hours long, probably not that long, that's an exaggeration, but it was a long one, um, I completely forgot to uh, ask you about the shoes. So next time, it's written um, in my mental notes, right scratched on my brains to, to ask you about that. Um, the part of the uh, interview that we're going to leave uh, leave with you at the moment to, uh, for our listeners to hear um, is when he talked about his what race he'd choose uh, to tell people to go and watch, um, which was a different answer than other people have answered. Um, so it was an interesting option. Um, and at the time that he sat down with Michael Schumacher, another Michael Schumacher um, conversation uh, interview. Um, uh, it's just a, one of his highlights from his career. So we'll leave you with that to listen to. So I'm, I'm going to, I've decided that this is a question that I'm going to ask everybody um, mm. who travels the world with Formula One. Because um, I think it's a good question to help fans kind of plan if they're, if they're looking at going abroad. But mm. past or present, if you could choose a, a, a a race, not just a circuit, but a race weekend that you that you like the most. You know, in in terms of uh, you know the circuit itself, facilities, traveling to and from the cities around there. Where where would you recommend? I think Singapore. I think because it's a city race, um, so you can turn it into a holiday um, where you go to Singapore and then you can do Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, whatever you want around it. But the the race itself is brilliant. It's a night race, so it looks cool. Um, you can have the the fan zone is great and what they do in terms of things to do other than just watching track action is really good they've got concerts every night um there's tons to do in the city um so you can you t- it's a proper event really um and viewing spots you can sit in a grandstand you can maybe watch it from a balcony in a hotel go to one of the bars on the top of the marina bay sands hotel um it's it's a proper event that I think that if you're trying to convince someone in your family to go to a Grand Prix, there's enough other things other than Formula One to say, no, look, you can do this, that, the other, and actually the Formula One's pretty cool. Then um, I think it that is a good one. And it would be followed very closely by Canada for, the, for, for many of the same reasons, really. Montreal, you can get the tube there. It's not very far from downtown. Great restaurants, great bars, plenty to do. Um, that they... Um, the track itself is brilliant. The fan mm-hmm. zone's really good. There's tons of spots that you could sit at the circuit and enjoy it. Um, so those are the two that I would definitely recommend. In any kind of part of your, your career, what was one piece that you did or interview did that you're particularly proud of that you quite liked? So when I went to Valencia to interview Michael, so it would have been in his first year at Mercedes. Okay. And um, I hadn't done much with him before. It's, it, that was a one-to-one interview. I hadn't done much with him before other than like group sessions or the scrum type sessions or media tables. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't had like a time to just do some, like what you tend to do is have some small talk with the guy or girl that you're interviewing beforehand. And then you obviously go into the bit where it's all on record. And um, I went in and I remember the first thing he did was ask me if I wanted a drink. And I said, yeah, I'll have a cup of tea. And he actually went and made the cup of tea. Himself, oh, wow. Um, and brought it back and made himself one. And then we chatted for five, ten minutes about running because um, he just asked me, like, who I, he asked me a bit about myself, basically. And he was pushing, he was doing, I think, a marathon or a half marathon or something at the time. So we were chatting about that. 
And then I remember the PR came over and said, oh, look, like you're running out of time, but you haven't actually asked any questions. <laughs> and, and Michael was like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, we'll just start from in a minute once we finish talking about this. And so it was a real insight into what the what kind of guy he was. So when I grew up, the first race I watched was the 1994 Australian Grand Prix. So what a great one to start with, but watching with my dad. And so I became a Schumacher fan and my friends all supported Damon Hill. So uh, it was okay. very cool for me to to meet the guy that I had got me into Formula One. But also I was fortunate I got to him at a point in his career where he'd probably mellowed a bit anyway. But I was fortunate that I got to meet him and he was actually just such a nice guy who wanted to talk to me. And I didn't at any point tell him I was a fan or or anything like that. I just had a chat to him and was, do, you know, like I would chat to anyone and then just did my job for the, the on record bit as I would do. So that was that will probably stand out as one of the, the best things that I've ever done in journalism across the board, really. Um, and was an experience that kind of probably acted as a foundation for every other interview that I've done um, to this day. Um, and just in the way you approach talking to someone Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're trying to get out of it um and to enjoy it essentially okay so conversely then so you've had a, a proud moment you you've had a, a great moment with what it would have been probably your idol uh looking looking at formula one drivers um have you ever stuck your foot in your mouth uh, and said the wrong thing in an interview um as as, as have you had, ever had any anybody kind of bite back and, uh, and say hang on you can't ask that question yeah i've done, I've done plenty of difficult interviews uh, the, the difficult thing when that we do sometimes is when I'm doing TV interviews straight after an FB2 mm-hmm. and you might talk to all 20. It's very hard to follow an FB2 session and know exactly what every single person has done uh, and then be able to, to, to ask them about it. And I, really early on with Kimmy, if you don't phrase the question right with Kimmy, <laughs> he, he will have some fun with you and he'll bite back. Right. Uh, but I, you know, I learned the hard way that like, he wasn't nasty or anything about it, but I, it just made me think, oh, I just need to find a different way to like take notes during a race to just make sure that I'm on top of this as best as I can. But the thing is actually, ironically, the more you do it and the more they get to know you, they fundamentally know you're good at your job. So if you say something wrong, they're not going to, they're not going to do you over because they know you're human. <laughs> but the hardest person I've ever had to interview is in most sport is Bernie Eccleston. Oh yes. Because you just needed hundreds of questions because his answers were like one two three four words and he enjoyed the he enjoyed watching you squirm he enjoyed making <laughs> you like putting you under pressure because it was that was entertainment for him he would only do yeah. media because it's entertaining for him so he had to get some fun out of it so i remember the first time i interviewed him i'd run out of questions within like two minutes i was like well i can't possibly end the interview now <laughs> so then you just you're just trying to come up with stuff to talk about and, and and try and build more on what he says and stuff so that was a massive learning experience as well just in terms of like prep and research and and just learning to be able to respond to to anything really always have a question ready to go you know what i just love that i love the fact that they kind of had that relationship um it, you know schumacher was really relaxed with him made him a cup of tea you just don't think that from you know a seven-time world champion you think he's got a bit of an ego he, he wouldn't want to be sat down with you know just some random journo but he, he gave him the time sounds like it and it's something that uh lawrence is certainly you know really kind of holds as a, a, a kind of a treasured time uh in f1 yeah i mean i think 
Schumacher or Michael Schumacher, he was a victim of his own persona. And in race trim, he was very much not approachable and working, you know, mm. dead set, I'm doing it. Maybe that was a bit of a flaw to his, his you know, his legacy with certain issues. Adelaide, Jerez, the Monaco incident, just to name a couple. Mm. But there was still a human person behind there. There was, and from what I've heard, as you know, as years have gone on, he's retired and hearing stories. He was genuinely a quite funny guy and a decent kind of guy to get on with. Out with that, and seen a few clips of him dancing with questionable <laughs> uh, fashion sense, mm. with the with the jumper tied round the round the neck and dancing on the dance floor. Yeah. Uh, it's not the Michael Schumacher that annual, and of course, these are this is uh, you know very early social media days, probably before social media actually with him. So he, he set out his stall, there was no way to go anywhere, but just that that's Schumacher. You, you don't get there, you didn't get the access to him back then as you do with the drivers these days, and most of them, mm. if, if you take Vettel out of the, the conversation. Uh, so, yeah, just. Getting the more human side of it, and maybe the more reflective side as well. You know? And I think it's it's adds a bit of weight as well to obviously what he's going through currently. Um, you know, so hearing that there was actually a genuinely nice guy—not that we ever thought there was a horrible guy there—but um, hearing that there was a, a genuine, you know, real friendly, approachable person um, that, unfortunately, uh, he's going through what he's going through right now. Um, it adds a bit of weight to that. I don't know if you agree. It does, it, 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 well, it does and it, it just it whets the appetite for the upcoming Netflix documentary uh, surrounding the family, mm. and uh, which has been endorsed uh, by the family, which is uh, which is a good thing. Uh, obviously, you don't want to get all the fanfare about a Schumacher documentary to find out the family don't want it, because for me, I wouldn't pay any attention to that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and it's it's even better to get that coming through now when we know how private Schumacher, Michael Schumacher was with his family and how very much a bit like a bit like Sebastian Vettel has taken that mold from it. You know, mm. he has he has two personas. He has the racetrack, he has the family, and neither of the two shall meet. They don't cross line, mm. uh, 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 which is clear. With Vettel, has no social media presence for. Uh, all that, eh. so it's it's always it's it's yeah it's you can't it's Schumacher's very much like Elton Senna. Elton Senna's been dead now since ninety four, and you know I can't get enough of hearing about mm. him. A, a couple of months ago, I found a clip just before the British Grand Prix of him at one in a British news video talking about you know nineteen eighty eight before the nineteen eighty eight British Grand Prix he's been interviewed this baby faced young uh, Ernst Senna and it's similar now to Michael Schumacher anything that comes up about him you want to know even as a non Mercedes non Ferrari fan you want to know about because it, it's Michael Schumacher. Absolutely. You you you're right there, you hit the nail on the head. It's always just always nice to hear stories from from his career and from his life in F one. Our next interview was with none other than Ben Edwards, the ex-Channel 4 commentator, uh, commentator throughout the last 30 years on various different platforms, be that uh, radio, Eurosport, Channel 4, um, the odd BBC here and there. Um, he's, he's been about and he, he, he had some great kind of uh, insight into the world of commentating. 
Uh, and of course, he, he chatted a little bit about Murray Walker as well. What What did you think of Ben Edwards? Oh, that's that's such an unforgettable voice. That it's it's you're almost in the same league as uh, as Murray Walker. Yeah, you hear that voice, you know it's him. Mm. Uh, and what I think surprised me, and I mean this might be a bit uh, ignorance here, but he came across as a very shy uh, person yeah. during the interview, and not, and I don't mean that in a bad sense. He just, you know, you hear him commentating with so much passion and so much, you know, enjoyment, verve and enjoyment. Mm. You think he was quite an extrovert in public, but he's not. He doesn't come across as that. Uh, but it was, it's lovely to hear. You know, as they talk about, as we all did, mm. how much Murray Walker inspired them throughout his career. Yeah. And, I mean, he was the guy that inspired me to, like, I like, knew it was Murray Walker and he gave me that enjoyment as a young boy who was, you know, too immature mentally to really take in the, the, the kind of detail of Formula One. But mm. Murray Walker kept me into, kept me caught up just with his excitement and it, and it came with Ben Edwards as well, you know, what? I'd watch the the Formula One on Sky, and then I'd follow the, the Channel Four because I like to listen to what he had to say about it. Yeah, well, um, w- I want to make an admission here um, for the Ben Edwards interview. We actually had loads of technical difficulties um, during for that interview, so I, I apologise, Ben, um, for the technical difficulties that we did have. Um, some on my part, and then there was one on his end where he couldn't hear me at all. So we actually had to do the uh, conversation. I, I could hear him perfectly on my Zoom call, um, but he couldn't hear me at all. So he, he actually phoned me. My, my I phoned his mobile, sorry, um, and I asked the questions uh, down the mobile phone, <laughs> and he kind of answered into the Zoom um, so he could record it with decent sound. Um what that led into in the actual uh, in the conversation itself uh, was a an anecdote that he had where he actually broadcast uh, via using a telephone. Uh, I don't know whether it was the the situation that we were dealing with at the time that prompted him to think of that. Um, but we've we've left a, a little snippet from his conversation about Murray Walker uh, and that phone anecdote, which I, I think was quite apt because we were having issues, technical issues, where he was talking on a phone uh, as well for our podcast. So have a listen to that. It's a, gr- it's a great uh, interview. In terms of your commentating then, did you ever get any advice from the Murray Walker? Or did, you, did you sit down with them while, while you were in your career? Did you, did you have that experience with them? I certainly sat down with Murray. Um, the first time I commentated for Eurosport um, in Brazil in 1995, the BBC crew invited us out for dinner, which was really, really sweet. And Murray was there um, along with Jonathan Palmer, who at that time was co-commentating with Murray because it was sadly after James Hunt had passed away. Um, they knew John Watson, obviously, uh, but they didn't know me. And so it was nice for us all to meet up. And Murray was always very uh, encouraging. I, I never sat down with Murray and said, how should I do this and how should I do that? But of course, I had picked up a huge amount from listening to him over the years. I mean, I, I probably first listened to him doing Rallycross and I loved Rallycross and yeah. I, I used to listen, listen to that with a passion. As I say, at the time, I had no plan to become a commentator, but I, I used to absorb it. And there's no doubt he had a huge influence on me as a commentator. Um, because he was the main voice of motor racing when I was growing up, you know, Raymond Baxter had pretty much finished by the time I was really listening to, to, to Formula One and stuff. So Murray was my 
definitely my biggest influence and to to work alongside him almost well certainly in a booth next to him mm -hmm. at a grand prix was a huge deal to me you know to see him sometimes you have booths with glass windows between each other and you can actually see this guy wow what a hero and i'm commentating on the same race you know it was it really was a, a bit of a, a mind opener but but he was as i say he was always very supportive to me um said kind words yeah. um and we did end up working together once when I was with the BBC. He he'd retired long before that, but he came and did a practice session with me at Silverstone for the British Grand Prix. And he just came up with these wonderful stories. I didn't have to do any commentating. It was just wonderful stories from Murray. I, I can imagine he has lots of stories. He obviously been in there for, for years and years. Um, do you have any stories that you'd like to uh, kind of recount uh, for our listeners? Uh, anything that, that really stands out within your career um, as a great anecdote for our listeners to hear? Oh, well, several things have happened over the years and it's hard to, I, I remember when I was doing it for Eurosport with, with John Watson, it was a very different days then because nowadays you look at whether it's Channel 4 or Sky producing all this Formula One coverage and it's done with a technical team of experts, wonderful people, you know, working both at uh, Whisper, which is the production company for Channel 4 mm -hmm. or at Sky. Um, and, you know, they put together all the sound gear and the filming and the, and it's a lot of hard work. It always looks very straightforward when you watch it on telly, but I can tell you behind the scenes, there's a lot of hard work going on. But when I was doing it for Eurosport, it was just John and me would turn up at a track. The booths, the commentary booths are all set up by the circuit. Um, they would have, uh, Eurosport employed uh, somebody, engineer, who was quite often somebody at the circuit or whatever, um, to set the booth up, which was basically just a headset microphone and the monitors. Yeah. Um, the monitors were often put there by Formula One anyway. Um, and we had no presentation. So basically what happened was as soon as the program started, we would just start commentating. But it was just the two of us, nobody else involved. Um, and so it was very, in some ways, very straightforward, very simple uh, compared to how it has become in later years. But it didn't always work because technically, clearly, there were no backups. Whereas nowadays, I mean, there's always a backup for this system and a backup for that system. And if this goes wrong, that will happen. And in those days, we just had microphone, headset. And the only backup we had was the telephone. And there was a time we were commentating from Brazil. The system went down. And John and I were just passing the telephone to each other as we were commentating on the event, which is, when I look back, at you know, it's really quite funny that you're, you're commentating away on the telephone. And it was working. I mean, it was going back to Eurosport. It was being broadcast. Wow. But it does seem quite funny nowadays. Yeah, you just can't imagine that sort of technology being used uh, in, in that way to uh, broadcast to probably thousands of um, maybe even a million people uh, on Eurosport itself. So yeah, so he broadcast to all of the Eurosport fans uh, via a telephone, um, which is very hard to believe, but it worked. Uh, and nobody at home knew any of the, was any the wiser, I guess. But that was a great interview with Ben Edwards. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, he was. He would sit up a guy and, and just get a fly in the wall in that commentary box where he's passing the phone to John Watson <laughs> so that John could say his bit to pass back to him. I think it was the Brazil Grand Prix mm. uh, for uh, Eurosport. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, he, again, another great one. Uh, he's such a nice guy and hearing, to, hearing a few of his, his anecdotes from, again, another side of the motorsport world. Hmm. Well, let's talk about our next uh, person then. It, it's Matt Bishop, uh, who currently is the Chief Communications Officer for Aston Martin Cognizant F1 team. Uh, now, he did correct me on his job title because I think I just demoted him to communications manager at one point. <laughs> yes, yes, that, was a, that was a very good start. He, I was, like, he, he oh, was on, he was on that. Yeah. 
<laughs> but he was it was lovely about it he just said well actually yeah, chief communications man not a great way to start the interview but he was it was genuinely nice about it uh he didn't he, he, he just kind of you know corrected me and then and went on but as i say as i said in the in the uh, start of the the podcast itself this podcast today uh he was just so chatty so really kind of easy to talk to uh easily one of my favorite kind of uh, interviews that I've that I've managed to to do, um, just just for the sheer enjoyment of the conversation. Really, uh, it was just two Formula One fans kind of chatting about everything in the Formula One world. Um, what what do you think? You you, you said you you loved his defence of Lance, didn't you? I did. Uh, it was very quick, and I think it wasn't even. You you just said, you know, you talked about Aston Martin, and you just made a comment, or oh, you know, Lawrence Lawrence. Uh, Stroll's son Lance is in the team as well, mm. and he was on it. He's like, "No, wait, wait a minute, you know, he's he's fast, you know." He, he, I think it's something. Unfortunately, what Lance is going to have to deal with pretty much throughout his career, yeah, because the Stroll family are so fortunate with the finances, and you know, not to take away from the Stroll family, they built that up from nothing, mm. so. They're not, it's not as if you know, they're deserving of it. We're not arguing that point. But, you know, he was there, he was on it, and he was very articulate with it. He wasn't he wasn't just defending for the sake of defending. He, 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 you know, obviously, as a chief communications officer, you have to be kind of decent with the words. Yeah. Could have been with the job. But, yeah, he was, uh, he was on that quick. Uh, he was. And you couldn't really argue with it. I mean, he, I've, I've said in the podcast in the past personally that... He, I mean, Lance is a decent driver. He's, there's, there's worse out there. Mm. There's a lot worse out there. He's got he's got the car on pole a couple of times. He's led. He, he was uh, leading races. Actually, at one point when he led a race, he'd led more laps than Max Verstappen at one point last season. Uh, so yeah, he's right. Yeah, well, I've got a, a few snippets because um, we chatted for such a long time. I couldn't just choose one uh, part of the podcast. I've chosen a, a couple. Um, it, there's the incident with McLaren and the third pedal, uh, and then when he chatted about his novel, uh, which was very close to his heart. Um, so I want those two parts for you guys to listen to that we're going to put in now. Um, I'm not sure you might want to you want to talk about this. Maybe you might do, but uh, in my research, I came across uh, in was it 1996. Uh, that you and your photographer from your magazine discovered uh, the the extra pedal uh, in the McLaren. Um, did with, were you given kind of uh, any inside information, or, or was it just a, a feeling that you had that that that, that happened made, made that happen? Nineteen ninety seven, actually. It oh, was um, and the, and the photographer is Darren Heath, and it was Darren Heath's uh, genius really that did it. What happened was that. Uh, let me just quickly get this right. Yes, what happened was that, of course, it was pre-digital. So mm-hmm. Darren came back from the Austrian Grand Prix in 1997, and yeah. he was looking at the transparencies on the light box. And he said, Matt, come over here. This looks odd. He said, why <laughs> are the two McLarens, their rear brake discs are glowing bright red? Hmm but not their fronts, just their rears, and it's on the exit of a corner, the Nicky Lauda curve. 
So I looked again. And I said, well, it can't be me. How, why on earth would they be breaking on the, on, on the exit of the corner? <laughs> he said, exactly. <laughs> why are they doing it? I said, you must be wrong, mate. It must be the entry. He said, no, it's the exit. So we began to look at it and wonder why that could possibly be. And then we did do some, you know, what I would call journalistic research. Uh, mm -hmm. And even now, even now, 24 years later, I will protect my source. But my source wasn't at McLaren. But oh, in the okay. end, we found out that there was a second brake pedal. Uh, and I won't go into details of how we found it out, but we found it out. So what we needed to then do was get proof of it, for photograph of it. Yeah. Next race was at Nürburgring. And it so happened the McLarens were leading first and second. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't at that race, actually. I was at home and I was ready with the phone and we'd blagged or Darren had blagged a paddock bike from Jordan. Uh, obviously, the team I now work for, Aston Martin, but then Jordan. Yeah, of course. And mm -hmm. ready that whenever or if ever one of those McLarens broke down, I would call him, tell him where it was and he would jump on the paddock bike, get down there and try and get his camera into the cockpit and the footwell to take a picture. It worked a treat. Not only one, <laughs> but both of them broke down at the end of the pit straight. Darren went charging down on his bike, managed to get there before the marshals had um, had prevented journal uh, sorry, any photographers getting there. Coulthard had put his steering wheel back on, which you're supposed to. Um, yeah. So he couldn't get his camera into the football. But luckily, in his frustration, Hakkinen, who'd been leading the race, had not put his steering wheel back on so he could get his camera all the way down there and he took an absolutely stunning picture it's a famous picture and we yeah. now had we knew what mclaren were doing we knew having done our research how it worked and all we needed was the picture to supplement the glowing rear brake discs on the exit of the louder curve but we now had a picture of the actual brake pedal itself yeah. by the way we called it mclaren's brilliant breakthrough spelt b-r-a-k-e hyphen through <laughs> to make clear that it wasn't a cheat because it wasn't it was entirely no. legal it was very very ingenious and entirely legal but um but mclaren were not happy to see it uh, published of course because every team wants its secret advantage to remain secret so that it yes. may remain an advantage in the end i ended up working for um for McLaren, but it didn't look like that was going to be the case around that time. Let's talk about then your 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 novel. You you, you obviously had a, a t some time off, a sabbatical, where you uh, decided to uh, to write a novel. Um, do you want to tell us a bit a bit about that? And obviously, you said you said earlier that your your mother was a novelist, um, so it was in the blood, as it were. Was it always the desire to do a novel? Uh, I suppose I always thought I had a novel in me. Um, <laughs> my mother was a novelist. Uh, she died in 2013. She died of cancer. And at that point, I set up a foundation called the Bernadine Bishop Appeal. Her name was Bernadine Bishop. Okay. Uh, and it was, um, I, I didn't want to run a charity. So I did a deal with Click Sargent, uh, as it was then called, brilliant charity, which is now called Li Young Lives Versus Cancer. Uh, anyway, yeah. uh, where, whereby my mother's charity, she, she was, uh, of course, passed away, but the charity that uh, continues to bear her name or the, the fundraises for Click Sargent, which is now Young Lives Versus Cancer. So that's what Bernadine Bishop Appeal does. 
and we have raised quite a bit of money, the Gwendolyn Bishop Peel has, and her last three novels, um, the Royal, no, the, the last two novels, which were both published posthumously, the royalties from that went to the uh, Bernadine Bishop of Peel. What was the point of me taking the royalties? She did the work, she passed away. So we started a charity. And mm. then my novel, um, which was published last year, all the um, proceeds, every penny has gone to and is continuing to go to the Bernadine Bishop of Peel. It's uh, a book which draws on my experience, but it is complete fiction. It was set, it is set in London between 1989 and 1991, which was a period for gay men that was very, very difficult because of HIV AIDS. And people were dying like flies, particularly young men were dying like mm. flies. I didn't die, pretty obviously, but only by luck. A lot of my friends did. And I went to a lot of funerals. There was a movie around that time called Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, mm. It seemed to me that every year I went to four funerals and a wedding. And the four funerals were young gay men who died, sometimes age 18, 20, 22, 24, sometimes mm -hmm. despised and rejected, sometimes entirely alone, disowned even by their mm. family and friends because everyone was so frightened about AIDS. I wanted to write a novel about that because at the time there had been quite a successful and interesting oeuvre of fiction in the UK and the US, particularly in the US actually. Uh, mm. But when thankfully and, uh, and brilliantly antiretroviral meds were invented in the mid 90s, which turned HIV AIDS into a condition that can be managed by meds rather than an instant killer or a quick killer. By the way, uh, HIV is still a big problem in the world. There are 38 million people living with HIV in the world, some of whom do not have access to antiretroviral meds, and for them it is still a fatal disease. And there have been 32 million people died of AIDS uh, in the mm. history of this planet. It's a huge number, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, once in the Western world, particularly in the UK and the US, it was no longer that surefire killer that it had been. The oeuvre of fiction based around the narrative backdrop of HIV AIDS began to cease being written, which is a good thing. Right. There's a good thing because it was no longer a, 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 the, the terrible uh, ever-present killer that was dominating the lives of particularly gay male authors. Hmm. But I missed reading some of it and I kept waiting for somebody to write something and they never did. So I realized I'd have to write something myself and I did. And I did write it and, you know, uh, JK Rowling will not envy my sales figures, but it, <laughs> we did sell out the first print run and we're now on the second print run and all the money goes to charity. It's called The Boy Made the Difference. If your uh, listeners and viewers would like to buy it, even if you don't like reading it, even if you find you don't think it's a good novel or you think I'm an idiot or you think the subject matter is not for you or whatever, you're giving your money to a charity that looks after and helps the interests of children with cancer. What could be more deserving than mm. Click Sergeant Young Lives Versus Cancer, which is the charity that benefits. So I've enjoyed writing it. Uh, and I've enjoyed uh, publicizing it 
And I've yes. enjoyed being able to say, which I can, that I'm a published novelist, which uh, not everybody <laughs> in the world can say, and not many people in Formula One can say. So that was Matt Bishop. And what I want to talk to you about now is, is Jamie Chadwick, the W Series driver, the uh, Extreme E driver. She's currently also the development driver for Williams Racing. I mean, this this lady is is busy this year, <laughs> don't you think? Yes, uh, deservedly so. Yeah, uh, she she's a very she's a talent for sure. Mm. Uh, someone is probably deserving of a Formula One seat. Uh, I still struggle to understand why a female isn't actually driving in Formula One yet, uh, and I hope that it's not because. A female, mm. you know, if a, if a female hasn't come along or a, a person, let's get the you know the sex side of it out of it. If someone hasn't just isn't talented enough or just has, doesn't make the grade, that's fine. But it shouldn't be because they're any kind of ethnicity or of any kind of female, female, or whatever. The, whatever you can see yourself as. Uh, but yeah, she's she's a, she's a bit of a trailblazer. She's coming in after it. There's a few kind of. Motorsport, Susie Wolf was around. She's doing it from kind of the behind behind the scenes now. You know, she's uh, a few other drivers have been in. Uh, so she's there, and she's she's one that started to kind of make people notice mm-hmm. a bit more. Yeah, well, obviously, she she won the W Series in two thousand and nineteen. Um, she's currently leading the, the the championship in the W Series too. She just overtook Alice Powell in the championship for this year's season, um, so she's doing brilliantly. And she's obviously got uh, the extreme E that she's you know first race obviously she didn't do well. Um, the other car was a write off, but the second race she was there, you know, competing with these you know very fast men uh, and other other fast women as well um and of course she's also developing the uh the williams car so we chatted chatted to jamie for half an hour um just all about what she's up to uh this year uh what what it, what it means to uh to be a development driver for williams what what that job entails um but the part of the conversation that i want you to hear is just her experience with w series uh this year so uh take it away jamie chadwick um, so you are in the W Series, as you mentioned. Um, you won it in 2019, are you, uh, and you're you're winning it so far this season. So are you hoping to to complete that this year? Obviously, you, you're you're going the right way about it, and you've had a good couple of races. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, obviously, 2019 was the first year of the championship, um, and it was a really fantastic year for me. We had six races, and I was able to to take the title. But actually. Um, 2020 is a much bigger year for the series. We're now supporting the Formula One races. Uh, we were up to eight races um, all over the world. So, um, yeah, it almost feels like the sense of occasion is a bit bigger. So even though, um, you know, we had the f- success in the first year, it definitely feels like the pressure's on to, to try and achieve it again this year. But like you said, you've caught me at a good moment because I've just regained the championship lead. Um, I wasn't, um, you know, actually um, leading coming into the last weekend we had in Hungary. So, um, yeah, it's definitely tough got my work cut out for me this year but yeah it's such an exciting championship to be a part of this year yes and obviously as you say you're following the f1 circus this year does that make does that make it more more kind of involved is are there more kind of things that you have to processes you have to go through to during the race weekend itself yeah to a degree it is quite a different weekend actually um like i said the sense of occasions actually um something that i've noticed a big difference with and 
Um, you know, the first few races we had were pretty much um, behind closed doors, but Silverstone, for example, that was crazy. That's by far, you know, the biggest crowd I've ever raced in front of. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty cool. And I think the difference mainly is you get quite a lot less track time. Um, so we have one 30 minute practice, one 30 minute qualifying, and then one race, and then that's your weekend. So you really have to turn up and try and be on the money as quick as possible or otherwise you get left behind. So that's probably the biggest difference I've noticed from a driving perspective, mm -hmm. but actually, you know, when you're in the weekend, you don't necessarily notice, um, you know, the difference because you're quite, uh, I guess when you're in the car, you're a bit more oblivious to, to the fans and everything else that's going on around you. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you tell us about your career up to uh, the W series then? Obviously you, you, you've been in, in, in quite a few different uh, series, as you, as you've said, um, was there a, a series that you was your favorites uh, up until the W series? Yeah. I mean, I started in motorsport relatively late. I was about 12 years old um, and really kind of fell into the sport by accident. I'm not really from a motor racing background at all. So um, I followed my older brother into go-karting um, he kind of paved the way for me um, in the early sort of phases of my career. But because I didn't have that kind of motorsport history in the family, we didn't really know what we we're doing as such. So fortunately, my brother would make certain mistakes and give me the opportunity to have a slightly cleaner, cleaner sort of run through my career. Uh -huh. But at the same time, um, you know, nothing was sort of ever set in stone and there was no clear pathway for me. So I said darted around different championships. I went into the Janetta Junior Championship first, where I was fortunate enough to have won a scholarship that gave me a fully funded season for a couple of years or for the first year of the Janetta Junior Championship. I then went into sports cars, which is a bit random to make that jump at a young age, not go straight into single seaters. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I then had an opportunity to then go back into or go into single seaters for the first time and sort of start to understand this you know, or open the door for, you know, the Formula One dream to become, um, you know, something that I'd have my sights on. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I went into British F3 and then W Series came about. So a very kind of roundabout way of getting there, but I feel like I'm somewhere on the right track now. So that was part of our conversation with Jamie Chadwick, and we did leave it as a Jamie Chadwick special also. So it's a half an hour conversation with Jamie Chadwick, uh, and episode number 27 on our podcast. Okay, in the last interview we had, well, it wasn't an interview, to be honest with you. It was a, a full uh, mid-season review. We reviewed the season so far with Ed Straw, uh, the chap from the race uh, and many other places where he publishes his articles too. Um, he came and he reviewed the season so far, and it was a great podcast. Uh, it's very relevant, so you can go back and listen to the whole podcast now. Um, I'm not going to choose a clip because I think you should go and listen to it. Um, you've got plenty of time before the next race. Uh, and if you're missing F1, like we are, uh, it'll give you that little F1 fix uh, before the next race. Okay, well, let's move on then. Uh, to close the podcast, we thank you very much for listening today. Uh, it's been a bit of a different one where we've looked back at some of our great interviews that we've had Um if you've enjoyed any of them, as I say, head back through our back catalogue. They're all there available, uh, and I'll give you the timestamps where the interviews start, um, and you can have a listen to your heart's content uh, at some of those great interviews. If you're missing F1 like we are, you know, we're banging our heads against the brick wall, missing it so much. Uh, but this has been me and Coops looking back at our interviews. Thank you very much for coming along today, Coops. Not a bother. Next week, we've got a race preview. Woohoo! Yep. And thank you very much for myself to come and listen uh, for you coming to listen to the Everything Everyone podcast today. If you are on social media, which I'm 
pretty sure you all are, head over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube where you can find us at the handle at joinef one You can also find us on our web website www.everythingf1.com and please hit the subscribe button on this podcast itself so you can get them all of our all of our podcasts straight away when they drop uh, and you'll be the first to listen and you can also give us a five-star review and if you do we'll give you a name drop on the podcast itself wonderful thank you very much everyone and we'll speak to you again soon next week for our preview of the belgian grand prix bye bye bye